Hello, listeners. I'm Bridget, and you are listening to the first episode of Hearth, Home, and Homicide, a family production about family murders. My daughter Caroline and I narrate each story, and son Andy is our producer. As Caroline and I talk about each family murder, we keep sensitivity for victims and their families in mind. Our podcast includes violence and trauma. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Caroline. Good morning. How are you today? What's the weather like over there? That's drizzly, which is sad. We had our first little summer break here in the Pacific Northwest. It was nice, a little heat wave in May. Well, uh, Caroline, now I know you camp over Memorial Day, so of course now is the week that I start watching Memorial Day weather on your behalf. <laughs> and just yeah. so you know, I will not be camping. <laughs> it um, is I'll true. Be, I'll be thinking about you camping and vicariously camping through you and your family. Yes, absolutely. So um, anyway, I know that you have a lot of thoughts about our case today, so I'm probably going to be throwing you the ball to talk about it. But today we're going to be talking about uh, family annihilation. And uh, we've entitled our story today, The Deaths at Ospaston House. And I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. This is happening in England. And I wish I had an English accent to say Ospaston. But I, I don't, I have, a, um, I have a different kind of accent. So anyway, we are talking about a family annihilation. And of course, this is a, f- a form of familicide that is usually perpetrated by a male following suicide. And today's episode is just that pattern. Uh, this would be like if Chris Watts had killed himself, that would have worked out okay. So anyway... Christopher Foster was the annihilator who murdered his wife of 21 years, 21 years, Jill, his daughter, Kirsty, who was just 15. So that's just, oh my God, before killing himself by fire. Holy hell, that's a lot. Yeah. He did it on what is called a bank holiday in England, August 2008. A bank holiday is a day off for the public, and I guess banks and such are closed on such a day. And there is a summer bank holiday in England. I had to look up bank holiday, like the banks close, and so then it becomes a national holiday when the banks close. But no, it's just another way of saying a holiday sanctioned by the country. Okay. So a federal holiday. It would be, the equivalent would be a federal holiday. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he didn't just kill his whole family, but he took his $1.5 million home known as Ospaston House in Shropshire, England, with him to the grave. That sounds like it would be worth $1.5 million. But Caroline, you know, okay, he took his house with him, he took his family with him, but it gets worse. Uh, But, you know, we'll... Let's roll with this story, and let's, let's roll it back a little bit to see what was going on. 
So Christopher Foster, who are you? Christopher Foster and his wife, Jill, were regular working people who lived in a nondescript little subdivision in Wolverhampton, about 112 miles from London. And working people like it there because it is close to the Shropshire countryside. So, Caroline, when we look at pictures of England, we're not really seeing the built-up parts. We're seeing the the rolling hills. Very Jane Austen. Shropshire. I do love all that stuff. Wolverhampton. But, you know. It's, it okay, is. from this point forward, you're doing the British accent stuff. <laughs> just the just speak up because they're loud mouthed over there. No, just kidding. Just kidding. Quickly, I quickly go into what I think might be some of their more base accents. I don't know. I am also not English, so I don't, you know, I don't know how they do well, it. Well, you've got a good nasal thing going on there with the chop. I can't do it. I can't well, do you it. know, they are in my history. We are cousins after all. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, so in this Shropshire neighborhood, well, it's not a Shropshire neighborhood. It's it's near Shropshire. He wants to be in Shropshire. He'll get there, but he's not there yet. So Chris sold this and that over time, including mattresses door to door. Caroline, have you ever heard of selling mattresses door to door? No, I mean, I've seen mattresses sometimes for free on the side of the road, and I think no one's taking that. The garbage man will take that for you. It's out in the elements. So that that's, I don't think I would buy a mattress at my front door. I wonder if they have little miniature mattresses, and they say, I don't know. I don't know yeah, anything about right. it, but I've never heard of a door-to-door mattress salesman. But, you know, my hat is off to you people if you're still doing that. But the last thing he sold in this door-to-door fashion was pizza boxes that could be used as insulation. Okay, got me there too, Chris. I've never heard of that. That's very interesting. Yeah, I guess Chris Foster was a go-getter, and maybe he was an out-of-box thinker. So, you know, here is this working bloke, as he was known at the time, His life took an amazing turn, though, in July 1998, because there was a disaster known as Piper Alpha Disaster in the North Sea off the English coast. It was an offshore oil production platform with 226 men on board. The platform exploded in a ball of flames caused by a gas leak, and more than half the crew perished. It was cataclysmic. cataclysmic. Um, You know, you could watch this from ashore and it went on for days. That's sad. So it totally permeated the zeitgeist of the the, uh, English coastline at the time. Right. Chris Foster was mesmerized over the many days that it took for this disaster to unfold. And it burnt for days, as I mentioned. The disastrous fire was due to a containable fire that raged out of control because of insufficient insulation around the valves, which gave the fire a pathway to the oil. So Chris decided he would invent a product that would make the valves fireproof 
on such a platform or a Derek or anywhere where these kind of circumstances exist. He mortgaged his house to fund the development and testing of his invention. I wonder how his wife felt about that. Jill. Yeah. Right. Like what those discussions would have been like. I mean, I hope discussions would have been had. Uh, plans would have been looked at. Dreams created together. Right. Goal setting. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we'll never know. But um, it came down to one test in the end with all this development and so forth that he bet his house on. Came down to one test. And he held his breath. His mom was there. Everybody was there. The oil production mucky mucks were there. They looked on. They wanted a fake, they wanted a real fire to demonstrate the efficacy of these valve insulator products that he was going to sell. And it was a success. And Chris became a millionaire overnight. Oh, that's awesome. Good for Chris. That's, I mean, that's a scary prospect. I don't think I would ever find myself in unless. Unless you were truly, I mean, just dedicated and believed in the idea you had and you saw that path forward. I just haven't never really had that moment with a business idea. I've had it in other facets of my life, like career goals and things like that. But that's amazing. Way to go. Yeah. You know, I don't have that drive either, but I wish I did. I want it. So I have it in a small quantity called, you know, uh, Good luck, Bridget. Anyway, <laughs> it was a success. And, you know, I got to say, even though I know how this story turns out, I really like Chris's drive and determination. I, my, yeah. you know, I respect that. What would it be like to risk my entire house and home on a bet of a lifetime? And that's what he did. Would you do that, Caroline? I mean, I, I can't. It's just, it's one of those things where you, your relationship to an idea or goal really determines right? Like your, your faith in the, no, this, I'm going to put every bit of energy I have behind this idea and I'm going to push it forward in the following way, right? This is like goal setting on a larger scale. Just, I'm going to say it depends because I think that there are moments where you can see that that's a good investment. Everything I own in the pot to try and make this work. Wow. (laughs) I admit I don't have that strong of a backbone. I don't, I don't, I can't gamble at that magnitude, but I, I, I wish I could. Could because you've done it before. You've done some things that were a gamble, even though they weren't lose my house gambles. They were like, I don't know. They were like this might not work out gambles. I know in your career you made choices like that. Like I'm just throwing. I it did, away. and we did lose our house one time, and so well, not lose it, but we had to sell it. Like we were underwater, and we had to right. sell it underwater. Come up with money at the closing. But that had to do with other circumstances. But I did choose to be in the circle where those circumstances could happen. But I was young. I had no forethought. Anyway, I will say this. If I had millions of dollars suddenly, just suddenly, I have to say I would not know what to do with it. I mean, I have a lot of compassion for lottery winners who wind up broke and homeless within a matter of a few years. Yes. What about you? Do you just think, boy, I'd do better? You know, there's a reason the universe has decided that I should not be a millionaire. And I've accepted those reasons. She, she's probably right. <laughs> just keep me alive and happy. And I'm, I don't need to be a millionaire. Right. 
I wouldn't know what to do. Right. And, and, you know, Chris was spending a little bit of, out of a, a sense of abandon. I mean, he just didn't know what to do. I don't think he knew that he didn't know what to do, but I mean, he bought cars, he bought motorbikes. He moved his wife and young daughter to a five bedroom, new built home on the edge of Wolverhampton with a heated indoor swimming pool. Wow. Oh my God. What would you do if you won a million dollars, Caroline? Just quick, right off the top of your head. Buy property. Buy property. Yeah. I, I yeah, that's probably what I would do. I just want land that's isolated and mine and you can't come in unless you ask me and all that. (laughs) Oh, okay. So you're going to Montana is what I'm hearing. (laughs) I'm like, you know, the Pacific Northwest, I love all of the places that are, are encompass the Pacific Northwest. So one in each spot. Thank you. One in each spot. Okay. Well, you know, I might start a dog rescue or something like that. That would be fun. I oh. think it would be fun, but it would probably kill me and break my heart. Yeah, but we could assemble the dream team. You and I have talked about this before, having a rescue ranch, you know? Yeah. We could invite Caesar Milan. Caesar, you're our first pick. I know you're busy. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think this early extravagance is weird. I I really don't. I'm not going to fault him for that. But then he started mixing in higher social circles exclusively. And a friend of Chris's named Dave Mitchell, very good friend, and we'll hear more from Dave, said of Chris that um, to come in second place wasn't Chris's style. Huh. He had to be up there with the winners. Okay. So now we're kind of veering away from what money would do to me. I would not begin to want to hang out in a different social circle. Right. I might want to do things for my social circle that maybe they couldn't do for themselves. That would be fun. But I mean, it would be just fun to treat everybody. I agree. Or do what that couple did that they made a movie about where they saved their their dying town by winning the lottery but I yeah the coming in second doesn't coming in second place isn't his style speaks to a competitive nature that I see a lot and competition is healthy but it becomes very unhealthy immediately when you can't not have competition around the actions you take or things that you do in your life you've got a potential problem I think I think you're right. And, you know, I have to say now I can look back on Chris's early life as a regular bloke and say this grit, this this determination was right there front and center at that time. Yes. But now I know that part of what drove him was a desire to get into the winner's circle, that small little circle. Yes. Like that's the drive. It's not about this idea that saves lives. I mean, there's, that's there, but it's really so that I can get in this circle of people. The other thing that this brings up is kind of a hypothetical, but was Chris Foster always aiming to find a way to reach the upper crust income brackets, hang out with rich people exclusively to be what he perceived as a winner, which would mean that he thought he was a loser before he invented his product? Because if so, this might be the first piece of insight into what and why he did what he did later in 2008. That deep down inside, he could not deal with, I'm a winner on a losing streak. 
he can't see himself as a winner unless he's winning. Right. So, how did Chris, Jill, and Kirsty come to live in the mansion they were living in at the time of their murders? Well, by all accounts, Jill saw Osbaston House and its lovely 16 acres of English countryside in Shropshire Life magazine on Thursday. They viewed the house on Saturday and they bought it for a million dollars that afternoon with cash. This is something he proudly told his mother as if it's a good thing to see a picture, go look at it in person and make a million dollar offer on the spot. And then he told another, then he spent another 216 pounds, which would be about, I don't know, close to 400 bucks here, went to local antique dealers for furnishing it in an appropriate fashion. So remember I said his, yeah, that's a lot of, (laughs) and to spend it so fast and to make such a quick decision, his friend Dave Mitchell felt his pretensions led Chris to be less than careful about the authenticity or the state of what he bought because the house was in an awful state. He didn't really even look at it. Some of the pictures and furniture were fakes. By pictures, I mean art. Some of the art he bought were fakes. Some of the furniture he bought were fakes. He said that veneer that burnt off of one of the tables, there was soft wood underneath. I guess that's a tell. I don't know. I've never had, you know. We didn't buy furniture in Shropshire. We have no clue. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Dave, are you just jealous that your friend got rich and can now afford to be wild and crazy? I I mean, you know, I I mean, Chris made the millions. And in my opinion, he had a right to be cuckoo nana if he wanted to. Correct. And Dave is a good friend. And Dave is a good friend. But it does show that maybe he was more of an inventor dreamer than an astute businessman. You know, when you're going to go from entrepreneur to business person, you need to hire some good people. Get out of their way. And as we know, when you're spending money to lift yourself into a new society, new lifestyle, whatever you want to call it that you're doing for yourself you're building infrastructure first, right? That sustainable platform on which you will now live forever. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that would be the smart thing to do, but he didn't do any of that. But anyway. Up on the wall to call it posh, when in reality, we don't know what it is. He just spent a lot of money on it. That doesn't make something posh. No, it doesn't. I mean, maybe he was a social climber from the get-go, and, you know, that's kind of a shallow way to be. But I know for sure that Christopher Foster would never give me or somebody like me the time of day if he really was just clawing his way to upper-crust society in England. I mean, for Christ's sake, there's a monarchy at the top of that. How are you? You're never going to get there unless you're, you know, born to it. And according to Harry, it's not that great. Yeah, <laughs> it's a different level for Americans. We keep up with the Joneses, but we do. there you're keeping up with the Queen. I'm staying in history. Sorry, that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I do notice in my own self that when my neighbor is gussying up their landscape, I feel guilty about the weeds I haven't gone out there and plucked yet. 
Mm-hmm. So back to your idea about living on a big piece of property where nobody can come on yeah. the property unless right. you want them to. That's right. All I got to worry about is drones. I'll figure that yeah, out. Yeah, very <laughs> true. Very true. That's interesting that that's where we're at. Anyway, we don't know, you know, you and I already know that this does not end well. So what happened next? Well, Chris was not just buying cars. He had a huge stable filled with horses his daughter wanted. Kirsty loved her new life as a horse-crazy girl in the Shropshire, beautiful Shropshire countryside. She went to a posh boarding school. Jill had everything she wanted whenever she wanted it. They had big dogs. They had horses. They had all this nature around them. 16 acres is a lot of land. Lavish excursions, well-heeled friends, They had endless money to spend as they pleased. Everybody was happy at Ospaston. The long-ago door-to-door salesman from Wolverhampton had happily taken on the identity of a country squire. He could not get enough of shooting with his well-heeled squire friends. I think when they say shooting, they mean... The dogs flush out the birds and then they all shoot the birds. Or it could mean like even clay pigeon shooting, but just shooting. We just want to be shooting. Yeah. He bought bought some very expensive shotguns, like thousands and thousands of dollars a piece. And every organized hunt that he went on with his friends, his new friends, cost him thousands of dollars. Even the outfits that they wear to do that stuff, Caroline, cost a lot of money. He did the whole red suit. Oh, God. You know, I don't know what he was wearing, but it wasn't Levi's. Okay. So (laughs) anyway, he spent his money like water. And in a month, he was known to spend up to a hundred grand in a month on guns and shooting alone. He owned very fancy cars that probably cost more than my house and your house put together. Well, maybe just my house. You have a bigger house than I do. Nicer house. It's a different location. So it balances out. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, we'll never know, but there it is. And at this time, Christopher Foster knew that he was in trouble. This spending caught up with him and he knew it. And he kept doing it. And he kept it secret from everybody. He owed at some point, not long after he had come into his fortune, he owned over a million dollars in back taxes. But he told people that he had all his money going offshore or going to foreign countries and he never had to pay any taxes. That was a lie. He owed more than a million dollars in taxes. He was sued over one of his patents. And he lost his business, essentially, over time, over a few years. I'm not kidding. Now, oh in 2000, in 2000, in, in, it was 93 or 98 that he became wealthy. I have to go yeah. back to my notes and see when that was. But, uh, you know, it was the disaster that unfolded in 1998. So from 1998 to the annihilation of his entire family in 08, Caroline, that's only 10 years. 
Well, and you have to assume that the majority, meaning like a 70-30 split of those years, would have been years in turmoil where he knew he didn't have this money and he's out here trying to pretend like he does until he can figure out how to get it again, is my guess. I guess. I I think so. I guess, you know, he, he didn't think for a minute that it was really lucky that, I mean, he was an inventor. So that's not luck. That's talent. But did he maybe think that, you know, he should have been diversifying during this time, maybe? That's my thought. Did he feel like that patent was going to get sold more? Did the patent becoming a part of a lawsuit in, in affect his plans with the the patent, you know, because I think that is where people make money. They license out this patent rights, right, to this product. I don't know and what they were doing. I did read one article that indicated that at some point when he started to realize he was in trouble financially, um, that he, his, his answer to that was to go find cheaper products to go into his final product. So that's always a danger. Yeah. Capitalist perspective. That's, let me just spoiler alert, not going to work. And it's probably going to result in many, many fatalities for people who use your product. So stop doing that. I I agree. I mean, you know, he just needed so badly some smart people, Warren Buffett or somebody like that. Just come in and help this man set up an organization that can run this thing. But he was running it, you know, uh, out of his back bedroom, I guess. I mean, the money just was not pouring in at some point. And he, he, but he kept keeping up with all those trappings and the spendings. And he never told a soul, not a soul knew what was going on. He secretly mortgaged Osbaston many times over. Remember, he paid cash. And his wife was clueless that he, and his friends were clueless that he had taken out many mortgages, but he did start flying into rages. I mean, I would be, I I think my rages fly for no reason. And so, you know, if he's, if he wasn't flying into rages, but now he is, people could have maybe said, what is your problem? Maybe he could have opened up. I don't know. Stress will definitely do that. I mean, irritability, a rise in irritability is definitely an indicator of something. Stress, fear, like it's an indicator for sure. I agree. I mean, you know, I don't know. I can't second guess. I know that he loved his family. I don't guess, I don't stop. I don't, that never leaves me, that he loved his family in his way. He's trying to do everything that he can, but he's also trying to keep up with the Joneses in a way that put him out of business. And now he's keeping it secret. So of course he's flying into rages. And on the day he turned 50, he seemed particularly melancholy about turning 50. Well, you know, I could tell him 50 is young, you know, 50 is young. On the night before the killings, he and Jill got out all the family photos. They watched videos of their own wedding and their marriage in the early years, and they both just wept and wept and wept, according to the housekeeper, Belinda. So now what? So you're walking down memory lane, and now you're just crying because you think it's gone? 
What? Yeah, this, I don't know what that is. is. And Jill's crying too? Do you think Jill's crying for the same reasons? Do you think he's told her something? Or do you just think that she's believing this to be a very nostalgic moment together? I don't know. I don't think he told her anything. anything? I think that he wept because, because of maybe loss and she wept maybe because of the bittersweet, emotional, Hallmark card commercial, tear-jerking movie, that kind of thing. Oh, and maybe she saw a tear in his eye and she's like, oh my gosh, this is so Yes, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky to have a man who loves me so much. Oh, so sad. I mean, and I feel... They cried. I feel bad for, for him because holding it in, I mean, that will kill you. It genuinely, I think... Holding things like that, secrets, um, stress, particularly money, stuff like this, it will, it's literally eating you alive. It is killing you cell by cell from the inside out. That's why, that's why it's all breaking down. That's why you fly into rages, you can't think, you're crying. Like, this is sad because it's a breakdown from the inside out of a human from themselves. I agree. It's very sobering to know that this was happening to this man who obviously was a loving person. He was tenacious. He was creative. He was all of these things and then got all this money. And I don't know that it changed him. I think it tapped into some things that were already there. But now he's crying over it. And is he crying that I wish I could go back to when we were poor and I was going door to door and we were so happy? I don't think he wishes that, honestly. I think no, I guess not. He wants, to be, he wants to be happy with endless money. That's he, wants he wants to have the money yeah. come the way it came in the beginning. But, you know, yes. after a while, when the entire oil industry has your valves, what are, who are you going to sell to? Mm-hmm. So any patents now, if you're, oh, well, there's truly- that and the cheap products that you're using now not, aren't working. So you're going to have a lot of lawsuits there. So as Foster's worries and fears grew, he installed high electric gates and he told Belinda, the housekeeper to refuse entry to anyone who was not known to him. So that tells me that he thinks people are going to murder him. Or that he's going to be, you know, the victim of violence because he owes people money, maybe. Yeah. The paranoia setting in, nonetheless, right? Another indicator. Not good. Yeah. Belinda had begun to notice that Jill would steer well clear of Christopher because of his darkening mood. And it didn't used to be that way. His mother also noticed it. To her regret later, she was very upset to know what her son was going through leading up to what she called his suicide, okay, and very upset that he did hide it from her. She was very upset. And there are some interviews out there with her on Oxygen where, you know, you can tell that she just was somebody who did not comprehend what was happening. And even after the fact, she sees it as something like an anomaly for him. And I don't think that that's probably accurate. But if it were my child, I'd probably be the same way. In August, before the killings, a friend texted Chris asking if he was okay. And his reply was, I am not good. 
So now there is a share. He's sharing it with somebody. I'm not good. Detective Sergeant John Groves said that he talked to Chris's former associates about uh, how Chris was doing prior to this event of family annihilation. And uh, he talked to his former associates. He, Chris, had talked to his former associates about using a gun to shoot himself, but he would always say, can you look after my wife and daughter? So people began to think that he might shoot himself. Well, I'm, I don't know what the protocols are in England, but uh, we have a, a lot of suicide hotlines, at least here in Washington. I presume they are all over the country. But in Washington, there are just a myriad of resources you can call for free 24 hours a day if you believe someone you love is going to harm themselves or if you feel the need to harm yourself. There's a crisis hotline there for you. So I'm curious what these friends would have done hearing this. Is there a discomfortable sort of like, oh, what an odd thing to say. I'm going to presume he's having a bad day and leave it. Or is there a, hey, that's an escalation. I need to take that somewhere. That comes to mind. If somebody me. ever told me that, I would call 911 and tell them. Yes. I would. And, <laughs> That's why I say you know, I would just call 911. I call 911 yeah. about big dogs that come after me. Or yeah. actually, they're not even coming after me. They're just there and nobody's around and <laughs> I'm scared. 911. <laughs> he anyway, told I another friend. Sorry, I just would say, I'm just that I'm curious what the friends did with this information. This is more than just I'm having a really bad day. I'm low. My habits are changing. This is, I'm telling you, I'm going to harm myself. Like, Uh, you know, and it gets worse because he told another friend, Mark Bassett, that he would never let any liquidators take his home or possessions away from him, saying, I would top myself before that. They would have to carry me out in a box. So now it sure sounds like he's telling people my business is in trouble. But if you think for one minute that I'm going to walk away from my business, you're out of your mind. I'll be dead first. 911, come on, people. Yeah, I'm curious what these friends really did with this information if they just, because I I also think it's very common that even though it turned out tragically that when things like this happen in a circle, you can still keep it in the circle, but you do start to elevate the conversation to almost like an intervention level. Like friends would have heard this and they should have done things like, whoa, buddy, you know, uh uh-uh, I'm not leaving you alone or whoa, how many guns do you have in your house? Like there are measures you take when the conversation raises itself Right. He had countless guns in his house. He spoke to his general practitioner on three different occasions about his suicidal thoughts. He was on antidepressants from March of uh, the prior year to the end of his life. So he murdered his family and himself in August of 08. And he had then, by that time been on antidepressants for more than a year. So obviously, you know, there were some steps that he took when he told his GP about this. But, you know, he it it just nobody saw that this person could maybe profit from a two or three day involuntary treatment facility visit. Right. Um 
to, you know, have that intervention that you're talking about. And then on the Friday before he killed himself and his family, he went online and visited a suicide website. Okay. Now, so he's yeah, sort he, of here. Yes. So he's starting to think, what am I going to do about these thoughts that I have? Because they're getting darker by the minute. The site that he went on turned out to be a spoof site. Uh, now, what the hell is a spoof suicide help hotline? Good Lord. Anyway, I'm sure there are spoof sites, but he went on one. But, you know, Chris was deadly serious. Police are clear that the timings of the killings reflected someone who was calm, collected, and rational. Now, calm, collected, and rational, when I read that, I thought, you're going to have to show me calm, collected, and rational, because all I see right now is desperation. But, but there are videos of Chris carrying out his family annihilation. And it's just so haunting. And you can watch them on, you know, Oxygen had them, or at least YouTube. Some of the some of the newspaper articles that I read about it. Uh, on the bank holiday in August two thousand eight. Now remember, he it's 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 the weekend now, and there's going to be a bank holiday on Monday. So uh, he has gone to a suicide hot you know suicide helpline on Friday, but it turned out to be you know, a spoof site. And so I guess he turned into this resolved, calm, collected, rational person and knowing that he had decided what he was going to do. Because on that bank holiday in August 2008, Christopher Foster, Jill Foster, and their daughter, Kirsten, went to a summer holiday outdoor barbecue and hunting party very normal for what they are now doing in their upper crust Jane Austen little world. And all of their upper crust friends were there. Christopher was in fine spirits. He was bragging about an 11 million pound deal he had in the pipeline with Russians. So now everybody who was worried about him is worrying no more. Uh, he has, uh, he, he has this 11 million pounds coming in, which is close to 20 million in dollars, American dollars. He said nothing about the 4 million pound debt he was actually facing. He said nothing either about the fact that when Belinda, the housekeeper started her drive home earlier in the day, Belinda noticed that a note had been pasted onto the gate across the Foster's driveway. She brought it back to Chris without opening it, of course. But when Chris Foster did open it, it was an announcement, you know, like a notice from the bank informing Chris that the receiver would be coming in the morning to begin the foreclosure proceedings on Ospaston House. Now, by coming in the morning, I'm assuming that means Tuesday morning because it's a bank holiday. So the receiver for the bank is not going to be coming over Friday, uh, excuse me, uh, Saturday or Sunday or Monday. But they're coming 
to Ospiston House to begin foreclosures. So now he called the suicide hotline on Friday, and then he went to this event and made up a story about pipeline of money coming in from the Russians. But what had really happened was he found out that the receiver was coming, and he'd already told people, before I'd go into receivership, bankruptcy, whatever you want to call it, that means I lose my house. I, I, you'll have to take me out in a box. That's it. They're taking my house over my dead body. That's what he said. He said that already. So now they've come to take his house. So he's just painting a beautiful picture for everybody while in the back of his mind, he's got a different plan. Christopher and his family went home from the party. Daughter Kristen, Kristen talked with her friends on the phone before going to bed. And talking to the people that she was talking to, she had no clue. She was talking about, you know, some horseback stuff that was going to be happening the next week. Jill went to bed. She's tired, you know, socializing for hours and hours and hours. And then whatever you do, if you're not a hunter, but there are all these other people shooting at whatever. I don't know, but she was tired. Chris's very own CCTV cameras, which he had purposed, purchased to protect himself and his family and because you know he this is like the tall wire you know protective fences and the um other things there were cameras and they caught and recorded chris's actions that night the camera showed chris approaching the kennels and the stable block at 3:10 a.m with a 22 caliber rifle, with a silencer and a lamp attached to illuminate the target. What the hell, Caroline? I mean, you know, here comes, here comes some trigger warnings for people who don't want to hear about this, but his annihilation was caught on camera. The recordings show that he had a plan in his head. There was no hesitation. He walked with focus and determination. That's my, those are my words, because uh, I've watched these videos. He had apparently already killed his wife and daughter with a shotgun blast to the head as they slept. So they never knew what hit them. I mean, they never knew. So by the time the recordings were captured, his moves were capturing his moves early that morning. He was headed straight to the stables. With a purpose in mind, he shot each horse in the head and then set fire to the stables. Then he put the dogs in their kennels and he killed them the same way. Then he dragged their carcasses to the stable. All of this is on video. He walked like an automaton, Caroline. Mm. He, he then drove a large horse trailer not a horse trailer like I might have. You know, I used to have a donkey, and um, he could ride in the back seat of our car, actually. But this is a huge, huge, huge rich man's horse trailer. He drove that across the driveway, and he punctured all the tires. 
And he oh, did that wow. so as to delay the fire brigade that would be coming. Whoa. He wanted that house to go up in flames. Well, I actually take a large issue with these killing of the animal. And this is, it becomes, like you said, it's really calculated and focused and methodical, which is chilling because it's, it's just so like, like a death squad, you know, like militarized this, okay, clear the camp, you know, like it just, oh yeah. whoa, you shot every animal in the head, you burned them all alive, you put up barricades. Well, he didn't burn them alive, he burned their carcasses. It was still, I mean, it's just, to me, it's uh, the whole thing them. speaks of like carnage, like a carnage that I don't understand in the context of everything else. No. I I, it's hard. There's too much going on here. No. I don't think it's comprehensible um, in a right mind or at least the parts that are in my head, you know, over which I have very little control. They were there, you know, from the get go. I don't I wasn't given the part about, well, things get really bad. I can kill everything around me and be a great destroyer. I don't have that. But he did, apparently. Dominic Black, the first forensics officer to enter the house was deeply, deeply disturbed by what he saw. This is a quote from Dominic. He shot the dogs in the head. He shot the horses in the head. He shot the wife in the head. He shot the child in the head. No distinction is there. It indicates to me that he classes them all the same. There it is. That's, that's, that's the, dis- yeah, I don't, it's weird to me. This is all very like overwhelmingly like seen from a war that we've been fighting for 12 years. You know what I mean? Like the kind of carnage that you have just unleashed on your own family that you always said that you were protecting and that you loved them. Whoa. And all the animals, like, I don't get it. I, my mind is racing because I don't understand all of this. I almost feel like it turns out that Christopher was someone who viewed his family like a photograph. And when he got really pissed off or frightened or whatever he was, he just ripped that fo- photograph into pieces. Yeah. yeah. And. Now, I don't, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know. I mean, one of the things that actually entered my mind, Caroline, and I'll admit it, is the way that he killed every living thing, was it that he was being deliberate about it, or was he also trying to be merciful? Because, you know, there is a, there is kind of this mercy, but I don't think it was mercy. I think it's, I don't want you to squirm and make noises and I don't want you to uh I, you no know he just know. he didn't want him to know any of it I don't want you to know I'm going to kill you because of all these mistakes I've made I don't want you to know all these mistakes I've made I don't even want you to know that your horses are living on without you like I don't want you to know anything I mean he just they're non-entities to him they exist only when he does around them kind of a thing like I just don't, I don't get it. It's because he didn't. I, you know what? You, you just kind of hit on something there that I hadn't thought of. If, 
he doesn't want anybody to see the truth about him. And that's what caused his downfall is that had he gone to somebody for help at the very beginning of the unraveling of his company, and maybe he would have several million dollars less to par left to parlay into some other form of investment or company or but he never would let anybody see who he really was. I think that's a really good hypothesis yeah. when you look at the evidence here. He's still hiding that evidence. This is someone who was hiding. He was hiding. Yeah. He's hiding everything about himself, even including trying to make hiding after he'll be gone. When he no longer has the ability to interject and hide, he's going to burn it to the ground so you can't find it anyway. Right. Police found Chris and Jill's bodies by accident while taking pictures. Quote, I stepped on something spongy by the fireplace, which turned out to be their bodies. That's a quote from one of the firefighters. They were revealed to have fallen through the burned floor above while they were entwined, suggesting that Chris had set the fires. He poured more than 200 gallons of oil into the house to do so, and then he climbed the stairs to end up with Jill and in an embrace with her dead body on the bed. That's what he did to kill himself. Whoa. The video showed him with long, large hoses into or near the house, so it is speculated that he had a gizmo out of camera reach that pumped the gasoline from his own reserves that he had on the property and into the house to turn it into an inferno with no chance that the firefighters could put the fire out. Wow. So the steps that this man took, and remember he's got that big old horse trailer with the flat tires that they can't move across the driveway. The coroner recorded that Mr. Foster had died of a result of smoke inhalation, but a loaded rifle was recovered near his body. So whether or not he intended to turn the gun on himself will always be a mystery. He could have if he wanted to. It is just certain that he did not do that in the end. In the end, he died by his own hand, smoke, that he created. The position of his body suggests to Enid, Chris's mother, and to some others, that his motive was one of love, trying to protect Jill from the humiliation of his financial troubles. Well, I'm going to call bullshit on that. Mm -hmm. That's not love. There's nothing loving about anything that has happened here, Enid, but, you know, you go on and think what you want. Don't forget his daughter. Hello. Mm. But forensic, forensics officer Dominic Black and Jill's sister Ann Giddings just, fa- just found it to be evil. And they especially mourn his decision to kill his daughter, Kirsty. Right. I might have called her Christy earlier, and I'm sorry. Her name is Kirsty, K-I-R-S-T-I-E. Yeah. I think that Chris Foster did the most despicable thing I have ever ever had to deal with, says Black. That's the forensics officer. As a father, he had been put on this planet to protect that girl. She was in her own home, in her own bedroom, 
with her parents in a nearby room. That is the safest place in the world for anybody. And he takes her life. That fills me with horror. Yeah, I think that that summarizes it perfectly. This is um, never going to be seen as an act of love. This will always be a selfish act when you kill others because of actions you've taken and you are projecting whatever you're feeling about it onto them and you don't want them feeling it. That's still all you. That has nothing to do with those other people and taking their life will never be an act of love. Just well said. When Kristen's remains were carried out, all the officers experienced men had to stop work to recover from the shock of what they had just found. I'm sure everyone was hoping she had spent the night at a friend's house or somehow got out. It's just incomprehensible. But Foster's impending financial ruin makes his actions consistent with a man who would sooner murder his own loved ones than endure the shame of poverty. Or was it that he didn't want any part of his self-sabotaged life left behind for another person to claim for their own. You know, he didn't want Jill to go on living. He didn't want his daughter to have a life because he he wasn't going to have a life. Go somewhere else. I mean, let's be real. He didn't want any speck of the life he had compiled together for himself going anywhere. He wasn't going to inform any of them and he wasn't going to let them leave. I mean, that's pretty creepy. It's grandiose. This 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 gets back to that part in our story in the beginning where we were talking about he has to be in the winner's circle. Yeah. So what does that say about him and the thoughts he had about himself before he had the millions to be in the winner's circle, his version of what is a winner's circle? He couldn't see the future where the same mind that came up with this valve gizmo could come up with something else, right? Or could survive a fall back into poverty, right? Because anyone who's lived with no money before and and survived that and was able to pull themselves into a different, higher income bracket, when you fall again, yes, it is devastating. But typically you have those skills and the wherewithal to understand like, this is going to suck, but I'm going to survive it. I know that because I already have. Like, I think most people, that's really what's happening. Well, yeah. You know, you okay, you start cutting, you get the smaller house, you sacrifice and you take the shame. And I get it. You take the the hits from your friend's looks when you start to change. Oh, I'm not going to buy that or I can't go there or I can't, you know, I have other goals now or whatever. But that's, I think, what typically people do. They don't pretend and lie and then right. take everybody down with them without saying a word. Like, No, I think he had just such a brittle ego. It was just going to, you know, it's, it's not going to flex. It's just going to break into a million pieces and he's not going to know what to do. But yeah, he could have, he, you know, I'm thinking about what the, the maid, Belinda, said about how looking at pictures of the early years, they're just crying and crying and crying. Yeah. Why, why can't he say, let's go back to that? Yeah. Let's go back to that. Yeah. Or why can't that be the come clean moment? Jill, I've ruined our life. Like you're going to leave me. I have a secret I need to tell you. Are you sitting down? Right. Like I just, 
I guess, you know, I've seen a little too many Hollywood movies. I, I, I will admit that, that that's a little too, like, I get it. You know, people get in these situations and it's very overwhelming and scary and you don't want to tell a living soul you want to hide under the rock. Like, but we all know hiding under the rock has never worked in the history. No, you get, you, you're more obvious when you're hiding than you are when you're just going, well, F-U-C-K. Right. What just happened to me? The, and then, right. you know, come, let, let's just draw a crowd. Let's have a pity party. Right. Let's do it. Exactly. The Mitchells, his friends, mourned the fact that Chris valued material things so much more than friendship that he never shared his worries with them. Good point. Good point. Christopher's brother, Andrew, and Jill's sister, Anne, are dismayed that even if he felt suicidal, why did he have to take his wife and daughter with him? And what seemed like an act of defiance against those coming to destroy their little paradise. Caroline, the house, Aspaston House, Aspaston House, whatever, the house was eventually raised completely to the ground, as if it weren't already almost burnt to the ground. It was sold for 400 pounds. Remember, he paid 1.5 million. So uh, the man who began the construction bought the bought the land and began construction of a new mansion and stables. He has run into so many issues and losses of his fortune trying to restore this property or bring it back to, you know, something beautiful that he has determined that the property is cursed. There are, there are newspaper articles about him saying... I put in a brand new kitchen. I don't even have water put in there yet. And everything is like mysteriously fritzing out. Nothing works. I have I to take it. out the drywall. I believe it. That kind of carnage. I mean, you're going to have to get some serious sage up in there, friend. I just, you know, maybe <laughs> that's my property. Maybe I should go look at this. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know, Caroline, uh, now that we've told the story of what Chris did to his family and all the creatures therein and the house, I want to talk about the family annihilation. According to Professor David Wilson, who's director of the Center of Applied Criminology at Birmingham City University, I guess that's in Alabama, or it could be in England. Oh, yeah. uh, Where they have, yeah, yeah, in England. Okay. For all intents and purposes, these were loving husbands and good fathers, often holding down high-profile jobs and seen publicly as being very, very successful, Wilson said, in a Wired feature. And I should have mentioned that he's talking about family annihilators. And, you know, he did some research on family annihilators. He authored a study entitled Characteristics of Family Killers Revealed by First Taxonomy Study, in which he divides them into four types. One is called the self-righteous killer wanting to hold the mother responsible for the breakdown of the family. Well, entire cultures you built on that. Anyway, uh, <laughs> disappointed killers believing that their family has let them down by going against their wishes and customs. Um, anomic killers see the family as a reflection of their own economic or financial failure. Paranoid killers believe they are protecting their family from a threat, real or imagined. I think. And I'm interested to hear what you think. I think that Christopher Foster was a combination of the anomic family, 
seeing them as a reflection of his own economic or financial failure, and a paranoid killer believing that he's protecting them yeah. from, you know, having to go through shame. Agreed. I think that's it exactly because he didn't tell them anything. They didn't know anything about his anything. He, for him, they're just these ornaments of a life that he's built. But for them, he, he represented something they thought that was a part of their, you know what I'm saying? Like from their perspective. Oh, they were normal and he was not. Yeah. Right. Like they're a unit and they know everything about him. They know about his business. Everything we do, we do together. Right. Like was probably their perspective, the mother and the daughter. So how could they have ever even identified that that wasn't what was happening? Right. If he's just painting beautiful pictures, going to I the agree. Thing, oh, now I'm out of my trouble because I've got an $11 million deal. No, you don't. You just have a plan now to burn your house to the ground. They didn't even know. Isn't that interesting? And, you know, remember that when the reason that they wound up with El Spaston House is that Jill saw a picture in a magazine. I want that. And he went there and he got it for her. So yeah. I don't think they, they talked about things right. the way that you're describing, which is the normal way right. in most marriages. Where you kind of have a sense, you know what's going on. And there are things you don't share a hundred percent, right? Like, but at the same time, they're so small, the, the non hundred percent years. And so the impact of them coming out later is not as great because you had the bigger conversation around say the big purchase or the big change or whatever you're working yeah. on. But he didn't tell them anything. As far as Jill knew, everything was the same as the day that his big break came. Right. And unfortunately, she did not see that as a problem. Maybe she did. I wasn't there and I don't know. But I'm just saying that it's really a tell that he thought he was in charge of whether or not the people in his family got what they wanted, because that is actually true. Yeah. But but then he doesn't include them and then he kills them as a part of his leaving. Like, so that's what makes them just ornaments. They don't exist in his mind outside of him. It's like your yes. room full of action figures, right? They only exist when you are around. Otherwise, they're just plastic lumps who who cares if they burn up? I mean, that's a legitimately I think how his mind was was around these people who yes, he probably truly loved, but only in that way that his brain would let him. I only love them when they exist around me and my life's going well. I don't know. That's it's hard for yep. me to understand. So that's why I'm talking about well, it. Well, the so whole thing, thank God, fam familicide in general is rare, but family annihilators are extremely rare. Before we say goodbye to our listeners today, Caroline, um, I have a few words about our first episode, and that is that today's episode is researched, written, and narrated by Bridget and Caroline, produced by Andy. Our research is solely based on public domain documents, including legal documents, articles, books about the subject. Episodes are aired every other week. And if you like us, please subscribe. Give us a five-star review. Tell your friends about us in person and by social media. All these actions really help us out and help other listeners to find us. So thank you. We appreciate you, and don't forget to live and let live. Okay, bye-bye, Caroline. Bye-bye.